Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, and welcome to a very somber Silmarillion Seminar with Corey Olson. This is Jordan Brown, High King of the Noldor and Silmarillionaire in Mourning. In this week's episode, we discuss of the ruin of Beleriand and the fall of Fingolfin, or Fingolfin We Hardly Knew Ye. I believe there are a range of topics discussed on tonight's show, but only one important subject. There is discussion of the sudden flame and some stylistic moments from the beginning of the chapter, but then we delve into the most heroic yet heartbreaking part of the Silmarillion, the duel of Fingolfin and Morgoth. Some will question his motives, but I will defend him to the last, Fingolfin, most proud and valiant of the elven kings of old. Okay. All right, I think I'm more or less sorted here. <laughs> I'm getting some rabbit icons. Okay, okay, okay. All right, here we go. Sorry, I'm a little uh, uh, a little slow getting going here today because uh, today is actually my son Nicholas's eighth birthday, so uh, I've been a little bit behind this evening. Um, yeah. Hey, Mike, I just finished rereading Watership Down, one of my favorite books in the entire world. Uh, love that book. Anyway, um, okay. Let's see, there are about, uh, I think, somewhere around 120 topics that you guys have already raised here, uh, so let's uh, start working through this. Dave, did you have a preliminary thing here that you are raising your hand about? No, okay, all right. Um, then, in that case, um, I want to, uh, let's see, let's start with a couple quick pronunciations. Um, Matt uh, Enfauglith uh, is uh, the name of the, you know, the, 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 the plane of the gasping dust. Um that's uh that's 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 pretty cool. Um and I love gasping. You know, I mean it's enough that because remember that Ard Galen was this this beautiful uh lush plain and they used to uh they used to graze their horses uh there. Um and that that is it. The gasping dust is just uh I I, I think it's one of the most uh remarkably evocative place names uh in Tolkien, I think, for my money. Um but anyway, um let's see and uh Ignor, I think, was another one that uh someone had was asking pronunciation questions about Ignor, um the son of Fernarfin. So um okay and let's see. Yeah, Ignor. Um let's see about there's been mo- there's been a movement um to talk about this chapter in chronological order or you know basically the order of appearance that's probably a good thing there are certainly a lot of topics uh, you know a lot of things to talk about um and i'm sure we'll miss a whole bunch of things if we uh just kind of jump all over the place so i think that that's a good idea to sort of go a little bit more a little bit more sequentially uh so let's talk sort of strategy at the beginning because that's where we that's where we start off in this chapter that is what the Noldor are thinking and what Morgoth is thinking and what they're both thinking is not enough of each other we learn that both of them are underestimating um are underestimating each other so um so let's 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 start off Let's start off with that. And uh, uh, Mike, you had a point you wanted to make about that. I think there were, there were a couple 
parallels with the Lord of the Rings that people wanted to talk about. Mike, I think you had one here. Yeah, sure. The first parallel that I was thinking of was uh, in describing uh, Morgoth as not thinking hard enough about his opponents. Uh, and, it, and it is said that his hate overcame his counsel so that if he had but endured to wait longer until his designs were full, then the Noldor would have perished utterly. That immediately reminded me of uh, Gandalf in The Two Towers talking about... Uh, Sauron and the fact that Sauron was sort of misinterpreting and misunderstanding what his own enemies were up to. It's the passage when Gandalf returns and it starts with, uh, um, for imagining war, he has let loose war, believing that he has no time to waste. And Gandalf dubs Sauron a wise fool in that passage. Mm -hmm. So I thought I just noticed the two parallels there and I, I thought I would call that out. Yeah, and uh, I, I, it it clearly is sort of a non-coincidental kind of thing. Um, it, you know, at the very least, one can say sort of like student, like teacher, you know, like teacher, like student here um, with Morgoth and Sauron. Um, but I think that we can see in both of them that is, it's not just that uh, uh, that Sauron learned his tactics from Morgoth, but that they both of them have similar problems. And that, again, this is not even just about Morgoth and Sauron, but about sort of evil, the nature of evil in general uh, in Tolkien. Um, that there's there's definitely a... This tendency... Uh, the tendency towards this, this particular kind of problem. Um, more on this... What are some other thoughts that you guys uh, have on this? Other sort of uh, sort of aspects of this similarity, or things that you guys would want to point to, um, as far as sort of what what Sauron and Morgoth seem to have in common here? Anybody? Yeah, Laura, go ahead. You know, they both seem to be rather mediocre tacticians overall. They, uh, you know, in 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 this uh, Morgoth sort of unleashes this this great volcanic. Um, Tide of fire, which is which is uh, which is actually a pretty good tactic because it would you know instill fear in, in the hearts of everyone. But um, but as far as when the his armies come out and his orcs come out, you know you always hear about him losing, you know great losses, and they seem to be losing battles they should be winning, and um, it, you know just seems to be rather not 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 the best at uh, at, at tactics overall. It, it, and and Sara in the same way, you know, these battles where, you know, the orcs are out outnumbering the men ten to one, and they still manage to lose. So that's that's one similarity that struck me. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, you think of the, I mean, I think also of the stuff in the Return of the King, um, the the similar kinds of things, Mike, that Gandalf says in the last debate, um, and basically what Sauron's wisdom is going to lead him to there, and his line of thought that 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 Gandalf follows. And both times, um, with Morgoth and with Sauron, both of them overreach themselves really quickly, um, that their reaction is to sort of stomp preemptively. Now, Morgoth has been waiting for a while here. He's not just being completely rash, um, because he is, uh, I mean, he, you know, he's, he's been kind of building things up for a while. We're told, you know, the, the, the almost innumerable hordes of orcs, that people, people barely, um, um, people barely, uh, you know, he he says that nobody can even recognize that. You know, that no one has seen or imagined the number of orcs. But of course, he's also now got Glaurung full grown, uh, and the Balrogs running. Note: not flying. Neither Glaurung nor the Balrogs can fly. Um, 
flying down, and then he's got his whole, you know, fire thing that he does, and uh, with it he takes Dorthonian. So, um, so I think that you can see some sort of strategy on his part. He's not just going before his full strength is going. He's been building up his strength, but yet that desire to 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 smash first, I think, is is very you know this clearly gets in the way. And with Sauron too, he hadn't um, he had not yet finished pulling in his full force when he did his attempt at the preemptive strike, especially against Gondor. Laura, did you have a further thought? Yeah, I wanted to. Um... I, I wanted to say, you know, Balrogs may not have wings, but I can prove that uh, the elves did have wings. And I'll read you the <laughs> sentence here. It's a, it says, Thereafter its name was changed, and it was called Angfalith, the gasping dust. Many charred bones had there their roofless grave, for many of the Noldor perished in that burning, who were caught by the running flame and could not fly to the hills. Ah, oh, dear. So that proves yeah. they, that some could fly, evidently. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, see, they couldn't fly. That's a shame. Uh, yes, yes. See, that is, of course, the perfect illustration to Tolkien, as he almost always does, using the word fly, meaning run away really fast. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, so no, that's, um, uh, that's, that's all tolerably clear. Um, but, um, okay, anyway, sorry, here, here I am getting distracted by Wingless Balrogs again. Um, Okay. Okay. Let's see. Um, let's see more. Does anyone have any comments on? Um, well, actually, let me finish the thought that I was that I was saying before. Um, again, Morgoth has been storing up for a long time. This is not just a completely rash and unthought out stroke on his part, and yet it's still undercalculated. We're told that that he still has not uh, has has not um, fully uh, does not anticipate the resistance that he'll actually get, especially from men. Um, and it's interesting because you know one parallel that we can see here. You know, we've been looking in times past at the parallels between Melkor and Feanor, for instance. Um, but again, this is what I mean when I say this is not just a sort of a particular school of bad strategy or something, but a, a consequence of of being the kind of proud uh, and domineering uh, uh, person that, the, that, that these evil characters are. Um, even the elves who are sort of most sketchy that in here I'm thinking of the sons of Feanor make a very similar mistake initially in that they completely underestimate men. They're not interested in men. Uh, remember that moment that Caranthir has when he finally sort of sees this and recognizes that actually men might be worthwhile and worth paying attention to. It seems that the primary, the primary mistake that Melkor makes here is underestimating men. Um, and he, you know, and we we can see this especially when the uh, near near the end when the Orcoast gets almost wiped out um, by the people of Haleth, and uh, uh, with the help of Beleg Strongbow and the March Wardens of of Doriath, of course. But um, anyway, this is you know that so that's one of the clearest illustrations. He had prepared this army uh, to go and sack the whole rest of of Beleriand. Uh, and instead they were waylaid and almost completely destroyed. And it's sort of an interesting parallel. You remember that when the Noldor first came over, when the sons of Feanor, uh, well, when Feanor and his sons first arrived and they found the orcs basically in possession of almost all of Beleriand, um, there's almost the same language that's used. That is, there's this huge orc host which had been prepared for the sack of Beleriand, um, and instead they get smashed 
by these new guys coming in that he didn't really calculate on. Um, of course, like, why would he anticipate that they would arrive at that time? But anyway, um, so his plans, this army, which was supposed to lay waste to the whole place, in fact, ends up getting getting smashed. And so we see a, a, a parallel, a lesser, but parallel thing happening again, where with this army that's prepared to, to sack all of southern Beleriand, and instead it ends up getting almost completely destroyed by a group of people who are not new arrivals exactly. I mean, they're recent arrivals, but they're not totally new. Um, in the, in the, they didn't just just kind of burst on the scene the way the Sons of Fanor did. But um, but anyway, they're unexpected and kind of left out of his calculations. And so that's, I think, um, uh, that that I think is pretty, uh, is, 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 is kind of an interesting parallel. But I think that it's, it's that underestimating of men, which seems to be really at the heart of things. Mike, go ahead. And I would just add to that, that um, what I also see as a common element between Morgoth and Sauron is uh, lack of imagination. And in the Silmarillion, the mode is so high that, you know, you're not going to read a sentence that describes Morgoth's lack of imaginative capacity. It reads, you know, he esteemed too lightly the valor of the elves and of men he took yet no account. But I think that reads similarly to how Gandalf is describing Sauron in the Two Towers. And in that mode, you get the more explicit statements that he's Sauron really lacks the imagination to even come up with what his opponents might do. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and also because it does take a certain amount of imagine but also not only imagination but also respect i mean he what he does is look down on people that's what happens to people who think very highly of themselves is that they look down on everybody else remember the difference between you know the the, the fundamental difference between melkor and the rest of the ainur way back in the ainuindale when they were sort of hearing about the children of Iluvatar for the first time, Melkor's thought is, ooh, goody underlings to call me lord. And the other the other Ainur, their reaction is creatures other than ourselves whom we can love and through whom we can learn more about Iluvatar. So um, that is, you know, the difference between responding in love and respect and seeing um, even as, you know, as they do, as that is, as the Ainur do of the children of Iluvatar from the beginning, before the children of Iluvatar even awake, that there's something that we can learn from them, that we can gain from them. We will be made richer by knowing them and by loving them. And Melkor thinking, again, like, you know, fodder, subjects, minions. And um, and that pattern, that habit of disdain, that pattern of pride, that pattern of looking down on others, clearly is one of the things that weakens him here. He 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 he, he doesn't... I mean, I, I agree with you, Mike, there is a lack of imagination but again you can see like what what he's not imagining is what they're capable of is is that they have value that they that they are that they are worth paying attention to um so i mean i think that that's uh that's that's i, I think sort of a subset of that imagination here i think elizabeth go ahead Okay, great. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, one of the differences between Morgoth and Sauron, um, or at least Sauron from Lord of the Rings, is that unlike Sauron, Morgoth does, uh, he's got pretty much certainty of victory, though, because it's pretty much spelled out here that um, the, the Noldor, the Noldor are, are without hope, um, no matter what they do, uh, unless they're aided or unaided, they're without hope. So no matter how bad um, or whatever bad decisions Morgoth makes, he's still pretty much going to be successful in his war. Yeah, it's true that, well, right, <laughs> Their unaided war is without final hope. Um, 
and it, it's certainly true that yeah, I mean, we're we're told that really that that this is not going to work out. I mean, of course, it is going to work out because they're going to get aid. Um, which is why, of course, as I know, we, as I think we're going to talk about later, Turgon is is doing the right thing here. Um, but um, uh, that it, it, clearly his response to this to the situation uh, is 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 definitely thinking in the right direction. But we'll come back to that. Um, anyway, I, I think that. Um, I think that yeah he is he is essentially destined to win they can't compete with him and he knows that I mean it's not like his arrogance is completely completely blind um he's not just fooling himself when he thinks he's greater um I mean I, I I'm reminded of that line that that really awesome line when uh when Morgoth shows up on Feanor's doorstep when he's when he uh Morgoth is fleeing um and Feanor slams his slams the door in his face um, after Morgoth makes his final sort of attempted recruitment speech to Feanor, and um, you know that that line of you know and 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 he you know he 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 shut the door of his you know he and he shut the door in the face of the most powerful <laughs> the most powerful creature in Arda. Um, there is this huge difference. There is this huge gap. You know, Morgoth was not only is not only an Ainu, and they are elves, um, but he was the greatest of the Ainu. Um, so yeah, he knows it's true that he, he. I mean, his 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 thought that this is really imbalanced and that he can completely and should completely dominate them is accurate. Uh, and yet we see him still overestimating that space. Um, again, not necessarily, not necessarily overestimating his own power, but underestimating their power to resist, um, because he thinks, he thinks too highly of himself, but even worse, even more, he thinks too lowly, uh, of them. What do you guys think about, about Fingolfin and, and about the elves' reactions here? Um, you know, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about the bad guy strategy. What do you guys think about the good guy strategies? Any thoughts here? Yeah, let's see. Joe, go ahead. All right. Uh, it really just seems like they were fooling themselves. I mean, just, it, it seems obvious that, okay, looking at the past, like, over in Valinor, when something is going on really good, it's very easy for something bad to happen, especially when you're not looking for it. And there's an enemy on the same, like, landmass here that they should be thinking of all the time. And they're just kind of like, all right, well, I mean, we'll kind of keep them, away, keep them out, but we're not going to worry about trying to stop them or anything like that. I mean, it just, it, <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, this is really good. Let's hold on to it so nothing will happen to it. But yeah. it, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah, I, I, it's, you know, yes. But because the land was fair and their kingdoms wide, most of the Noldor were content with things as they were, trusting them to last and slow to begin an assault in which many must surely perish were it in victory or in defeat. Um so yeah, they 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 were content with things as they were. Um, it does kind of sound like they're fooling themselves, at least a little bit, doesn't it? Jordan, what do you think? I think it's not so much that necessarily they're fooling themselves as they don't comprehend that they will never win. Uh, that they just don't get that they cannot defeat Morgoth without the help of the West. Yeah, I mean they they don't get that they can't win. But again, if they did, well. I guess the question is, if they did get that, if they did really internalize it, what would they do differently? I mean, like, completely leave Beleriand, maybe just, just run away? I don't think so, because, I mean, of course, as they, as, even as the men argue, when they're arguing amongst themselves, um, since the Dark Lord is here in the north and they have, they have him in siege here, um, they have him kind of contained, um, 
So, so you know, they can tell themselves, and we we they do tell themselves that they believe. You know, remember we we spoke a a few weeks ago about uh, Fingolfin's kind of confident boast uh, that you know we we basically have, have you know no, no we can't sack. Uh, his fortress. We can't. We can't get in there. We can't overthrow Morgoth. But but we have him pretty well cooped up and contained. Um, and so they're like, hey, well, let's just like you know keep on with the containment. Why attack? Um, that see that's what that sentence that I read is is particularly talking about. Um, slow to begin an assault in which many must surely perish were it in victory or defeat. So they know like let's like, why should we dash ourselves against this fortress which you know we're probably not going to be able to take and even if we do we wouldn't take without terrible loss. Um, so uh, so why rush into that or and not even just rushing into it as if they're planning to do it slowly. Why do that? Let's let's stalemate is fine. Stalemate is a win, right? Um, yeah, Chris. Okay, thank you. I, uh, anyway, I, I guess as far as the the elves and their overall strategy, if they actually have one, um, I think it gets back to the, all of the elves are guilty of pride, just from the fact that they've all got one enemy. They all know who it is. It's Morgoth. Um, and regardless of their own petty squabbles, they need to be united in order to protect themselves, to protect everybody. And from Thengal to the sons of Theonor, um, and even some of the uh, the others, they they try. I mean, some of them think they ought to try to get together, but they're so spread out and they don't communicate, and they're just total, they become totally complacent. So they don't really have a strategy other than just stay parked and and uh, enjoy the weather. Yeah, I mean, I think the the parallel that you made with the Valar is really interesting. You know that that they are they are their complacency is in some ways kind of like the complacency of of the Valar. Why should we why should we disrupt things? Yeah, okay, we should we should fight this war with uh with Morgoth, but that's going to be really you know kind of painful and time consuming and uh and uh you know lots of stuff is going to get wrecked and then fixing all that's going to be a headache so why you know th- there is this sort of desire to simply enjoy the good times that they have you know right then and not start not stir up trouble um and i you know so I, mean, I think that you can see a parallel and i'm not sure that that's something that we're supposed to be condemning necessarily or always not completely um that doesn't strike me as a as an entirely bad thing um but uh but certainly it can kind of lead into trouble i think let's see dave i think you wanted to uh add something here yeah i wanted to answer the rhetorical question you asked which the elves also ask which is um why why bother why attack you know it's things are so good right now and a lot of people die uh the only answer i can come up with uh that which applies mostly to the sons of Thanor is well because morgoth still has the silmarils and you took an oath to pursue uh any being on in arda who has the silmarils uh and to relentlessly pursue them unto the death uh uh, and it's interesting that it's interesting that they are seem to be the most reluctant to back Fingolfin and go to war, uh, when indeed they're really the only reason anyone's here is because of them, uh, and they're the only ones who've taken oaths to say they they take those away. And I'm sure we'll get into this later, but I just think it's very interesting that the only time they seem to actually directly act on the oath is when anyone other than Morgoth has the stones. <laughs> 
You know, it's like <laughs> right. when Morgoth has them up in Thangorodrum, they're like, hey, hey, you know, why why throw a bunch of lives away and go get them? As soon as somebody else gets them, Baron or, you know, uh, Dior later or, or um, when the elves have them after the, the War of Wrath, then, they'll, then they start scrupling and saying, well, we better go get them. Uh, I just, I think, like, obviously there's really no hope of them actually winning, but their reason for holding back is not, um, um, you know, being wise and careful. It's pure cowardice. Uh, the yeah the sons of Fanor it does seem to be I mean it's it's it is certainly true that they do seem to be kind of shockingly selective on when they act on this oath of theirs um yeah the uh, and and I don't know I mean again I I, I it's uh, it's hard especially in this chapter I find it hard to to fault uh, Mithros too much again Mithros seems to be the guy certainly of the sons of Feanor, who really seems to be trying to do the right thing and to be working together uh, with with the others. But but yeah, I mean, the other sons of Feanor are busy doing other things until, as you say, once 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 the Silmarils leave Thangorodrim, now all of a sudden the oath is going to be driving them uh, in ways that it wasn't before. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's that that's fair. Um Okay, Mike. I wrote in my margin next to this passage about what the elves were contemplating was preemptive war, question mark, because it seems like this is a a little meditation on when preemptive war might be justified. When is your intelligence about a certain set of facts good enough to wage a preemptive war? And if you're the leader of a people and you're trying to convince them to wage a preemptive war, it's not so easy to do. I just, a number of interesting ideas sprang into my head. And I especially like the fact that there was that, that passage that Fingolfin's knowledge and intelligence was wise according to as far as he could see. And that's right. a problem for any leader that's trying to convince his people that we should wage this preemptive war. It really does turn on, do they, you know, do they believe and understand and what the what their leader is telling them to be true so right that's what i observed yeah no i i agree i think that that's i think that that's true and i mean of course it's not exactly um this isn't it's not not exactly a purely preemptive war um in that, I mean, of course, they've been at war with Morgoth. This is the Dagor Bragolach, which is going on in this chapter, is the fourth of the great battles already. So, of course, this is a foe with which they've already been engaged and who has already been attacking them. So it's not a pure preemptive war um, in that sense. But um, but but certainly there, there, there are some similar issues. Laura, go ahead. It seems like the, the strategy of the elves is more and more towards hiding themselves. Uh, you know, they've built uh, Nargothron now and uh, Gondolin. So it seems like they're, you know, it, they almost gave up on a- attacking Morgoth. I mean, it seems like they should have, if they were going to attack Morgoth, they should have done it long ago and not waited 400 years for him to, to be building up his strength. But it seems like they they would much rather hide in fortresses and, and sort of count on that to to save them. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons. In, okay, there are a couple of reasons why I have a hard time being down on the elves for their unwillingness to strike. Because first of all, I mean, it is clearly they're not going to be able to to win. It's not they they are just going to be kind of throwing their lives away. But uh, but as you said, Laura, yeah, they, that that's their impulse, and and it's not just their impulse. 
it's what they're guided to. I mean, Ulmo, the two who are most closely following the directives of the Valar here are Turgon and Finrod, both of whom were visited by Ulmo, and he told both of them, hide, build a strong secret place and hide there. No Valar has come to no no Vala has come to any of them and said, "Okay, build yourself massive engines of war and go go attack Thangorodrim." That's just that's not what they're being told to do. And and certainly those who have success, especially Finrod and also uh, Turgon, and of course let's not forget Thingol and Melian. This is what Melian did from before the Noldor even arrived. Okay, what's well, time to put up this, you know, protective shield. Um so they're not concealed in the sense everybody knows where they are, um but they're hidden away. They're they're protected and let's uh pretty much seal this place up. Again, those are the places that are successful. That seems to be if not a winning strategy, a good strategy uh for them. But I think also, I mean it's it's they're trying to do more. It's not their job. I mean, defeating Melkor is not their job. They can't do that. He, he he is above their pay grade. What they're supposed to be doing, what the elves' job is, is to be living in Middle Earth and blessing it and 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 enriching it. Um, and that's what they're doing right now. That's what they're involved with already. And I, you know, so again, I think that they're them looking around and being like, oh, you know, here we are in Middle Earth and we're really enjoying being here and. And our lands are really wonderful, and let's enjoy this while we have it. You know, I don't think I don't think it's a bad impulse. They're 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 that's kind of their job. Um, and taking on Morgoth, not exactly, not exactly their job. Dave, go ahead. So I agree with that. Um, uh, but I, with the exception of the Sons of Feanor, because right. that's not their job. Uh, their job is to get the Silmarils back, because that's what they said they were going to do. That's what they swore oaths to do to to uh, Iluvatar and every, and the Valar and everyone. So. So I agree that, like, in a sense, a lot of the elves are sort of not wrong in being reluctant to attack, and in particular the elves, a lot of them, Turgon and Finrod and, and um, Thingol and, you know, the sort of Hidden Kingdom guys are, are indeed much in, in alignment with the Valar, uh, and so their impulse may be correct. So, so I guess it's, I would distinguish the, the choice not to go to war from the reasons for doing so. Some of they they all make pretty much the same choice, and it maybe even is the right choice. But not all of them are making the decision for the right reasons. And I I maintain that the sons of Feanor are doing it largely out of um uh you know cowardice, unwillingness to actually follow through on their oath, and out of fear with for Morgoth. And then also like just it, it, it harkens back to that 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 sort of secondary impulse for why they came to Middle Earth, which is they came to establish kingdoms and to set themselves up as little kings over little um, um, fiefdoms, and and a lot of the elves are unwilling to sacrifice that. They are, they're happier um, uh, maintaining their realms and acting like kings and having power than they are going to war and sacrificing everything that they have to try and defeat evil, even if they had no chance. So um, even if they're making the right decision, I think their their intentions are, are muddy uh, at best, but they're, 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 some of their reasons are not such good reasons. Right. And I do agree that, I mean, as I said, it's, and I, I, I think one could see even 
uh, sort of worse reasons than cowardice in some ways uh, with the sons of Feanor. That is, again, it seems to be like, oh, their oath compels them when it's convenient for them um, and when the acting out on their oath almost every time is something which basically sort of serves their own corrupt desires, um, throwing themselves, throwing their lives away, battering, trying to batter down the walls of Thangorodrim does not serve their interests in any way. Um, but, but see, again, even with the Sons of Fanor, though, we, we have to be careful because the, we can't forget that their oath is a really bad idea. Um, and every time they act on their oath, it's bad. Um, so it's a little hard to say, hey, not acting on your oath is bad. Actually, it kind of seems like not acting on that oath is a good thing. Um, in the end, we will have an open debate between Maglor and Mithros near the very end of the Quenta um, about whether or not it would be better to try to keep the oath or to just break the oath, um, because, of course, they're arguing that they're sort of screwed either way. And and I, I think, you know, my my vote is very heavily on you're way better off breaking this oath than you are keeping it. Um, and so, so I think that, uh, that that by itself, that they're not keeping the oath, is not a good thing, but as you say, certainly their motivations and and their their, their purposes for doing that are hardly you know excellent and altruistic. Um, but I would just sort of point point that out that is the the deep moral questionableness of their oath as something which um which is kind of muddies the waters as far as they're not keeping it. Joe, go ahead. All right. Well, uh, it seems like they are trying to do what they were just kind of meant to do, but it's like they don't have a it's like they don't have a choice though. I mean. I kind of lost my original train of thought, but I'm just going to talk. Because uh, <laughs> it, it couldn't have continued, I mean, and it almost seems like it's the Valwatch fault when you get back to him. Brandon's kind of mentioning this. I don't know if he's talking about the same thing or not, but, uh, I mean, it wasn't the elves' job to, like, defend themselves from Morgoth or whatever. I mean, the Valar were kind of, like, supposed to take care of them, and it seems like their issue would have been with Morgoth more than the elves. But kind of backtracking, I mean, they just didn't have a choice, because even if they would have tried to just sit there and enjoy everything, Morgoth wouldn't have let them. I mean, he would have destroyed them and made them serfs. I mean, so, yes, they're trying to do the right thing, but, like, you know, long picture here, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and... And I think, though, I, I think um, thinking of you know the point that you were just making about the the parallel with the Valar, yeah, I mean their job is to enjoy, uh, you know, and this gets back also, uh, Dave, to one of the things that you said too about their coming and establishing lordships. Yes, the desire to establish kingdoms and to rule kingdoms at their own will, as Galadriel wants to, does seem to be a morally checkered idea. That is, in in as much as they are wanting dominion, um, I'm not sure that's a great thing. Um, but and certainly Feanor's speech, you know, when he's, you know, the the speech which ends with, you know, no other race will oust us. Um, is full of pride and full of of these sort of corrupt desires, pride and envy and everything else. But um, but nevertheless, them going and establishing realms which they are going to, you know, which 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 they are going to bless. At that that's but I get that's part of their job, and we see Balerion profiting from their being there. And there certainly are lots of instances of people doing it well. Um, you know. Uh, people like Turgon and people like Finrod they're 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 doing and people at, at Fingolfin and and and, and Fingon up in up in Hithlum um you know we were looking at this a little bit when we were looking at at the men and the relationship with the men and and uh you know how for instance the men um 
of the people of Hador who come and serve with Fingolfin and Fingon are blessed and elevated um, and made great by their own, by their relationship with the elves and by their servitude, uh, you know, their, their humility in serving uh, these elven kings. So again, I, I, you know, I, again, I can't see these kingships as being bad things either. They're, again, they're doing their, 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 that's kind of, it's part of their job. Um, but, but it is, it still is all pretty morally complicated. I, I, I know, but, um, but yeah, certainly in retrospect, it does kind of seem a little bit foolish to, uh, to just let Morgoth go on stockpiling and acting as if, you know, he's not doing anything here to, uh, to prepared, uh, to get prepared. Okay. I have one brief thing that I want to, that I want to mention. I have a little, uh, uh, Mike, I don't know if you had anything this week, but I have a style time point that I would like to do. I love the transition into the battle. Um, at the bottom of the first page, page 150. Uh, in my edition, um, the pause that we get, and not not just the break, not just the paragraph break that we get after the second paragraph, but the narrative shift, the shift in tone. Um, we you know we start off with this kind of wide view uh, summary, like I'm I'm doing like a a chronicle summary, the same kind of tone which has led us before to observe so many times that you know Tolkien will cover in a sentence or a paragraph something that we would want a whole book on, you know, the way, and the, that kind of survey mode and he's in survey mode. Um, and then all of a sudden we shift to a much closer narrative. You know, there's the break. There came a time of winter when night was dark and without moon and the wide plain of Ardgalan stretched dim beneath the cold stars from the hill forts of the Noldor to the feet of Thangorodrim. The watchfires burned low and the guards were few. On the plain few were walking in the camps of the horsemen of Hithlam. Then suddenly Morgoth sent forth great rivers of flame that ran down swifter than Balrogs from Thangorodrim and poured over all the plain and the mountains of iron belched forth fires of many poisonous hues and the fume of them stank upon the air and was deadly. Thus Ardgalan perished, and fire devoured its grasses, and it became a burned and desolate waste, full of a choking dust, barren and lifeless. Thereafter its name was changed, and it was called Anfauglith, the gasping dust. Many charred bones had there their roofless grave, for many of the Noldor perished in that burning, who were caught by the running flame and could not fly to the hills. Um, it's that, that narrative shift, all of a sudden, all of this description, um, you know, from the, you know, the, 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 the setting and, you know, the, the wide plain of Ardgallen stretched dim beneath the cold stars, the watchfires burning low, the way that we get this set up, you know, the, these, these visual descriptions, uh, of the moment before the catastrophe, and then wham, you get the fire coming down and the descriptions, the colors and the, the smells, uh, and the experience of that flame just rushing down and overcoming the people on the plain and, uh, and, 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 you know, coming up against the heights of Dorthonian and Eridwethrin. Um, it's, uh, it's really, it's really crazy. I, I, that, I, that I think is a wonderful passage. And I, I just, you know, the, what I think we do with this, um, and I, I think this seems to me a significant stylistic moment because it's a moment when Tolkien has paused, uh, paused in this again in in chronicle survey mode to say, okay, now is the begin. This is this is a moment. This is a story here. You know, we're we're gonna we're gonna just take a paragraph or two 
to try to do justice to this as a story. And we're getting like this echo of the story as it would have been told or sung or retold. Um, and I think that that's, uh, uh, you know, th- there, there are a couple moments we'll get a greater dilation of stories We're we, we are approaching and we're going to start doing soon. Uh, some of the great stories um, where, where he will kind of dig into them a lot more. Um, we're going to start Baron and Luthien soon. Um, but here we have this moment where I'm, I'm going to pause and do the full story here. Mike, go ahead. That passage is awesome, and I would agree with everything you said. And it seems to me that the stylistic shift and the sort of zooming in in terms of detail and bringing out more color, more sounds, uh, uh, more detail. It all and it it it, it all kind of runs in that vein, and then it gets even the the detail gets even tighter and tighter and climaxes with the battle between uh, uh, Morgoth and uh, uh, Fingolfin, and uh, the the I think for me the the height of the you know stylistic showmanship is the the colors and the details of the battle of the two at the very end. But I think you know I agree with you that there's that shift. And there's a, a great description of the landscape and then a lot of great descriptive uh, passages on the battles and the heroes of those battles with more detail than what we've been getting. And then the camera zooms in even further for the, the, the battle between the two key characters. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And with that, let us let us transition to Fingolfin. As I know several people uh, have been have been waiting for this. Um, Jordan, would you like to read this? No, that's okay. No? Um, of course I want to read this. All right. <laughs> Let's see. I'm so thinking. I'm starting. Yeah. Oh, I know where I'm. I, I've got, my, I've got my, my bookmark laid out. I'm ready to go. Okay, go for it. All right. Now news came to Hithlum that Dorthonian was lost and the sons of Finarfin overthrown, and that the sons of Feanor were driven from their land. Then be- Fingolfin beheld, as it seemed to him, the utter ruin of the Noldor, and the defeat beyond redress of all their houses. And filled with wrath and despair, he mounted upon Rakalor, his great horse, and rode forth alone, and none might restrain him. He passed over Dornu Faglith like a wind amid the dust, and all that beheld his onset fled in amaze, thinking that Aroma himself was come, for a great madness of rage was upon him, so that his eyes shone like the eyes of the Valar. Thus he came alone to Angband's gates, and he sounded his horn, and smote once more upon the brazen doors, and challenged Morgoth to come forth to single combat, and Morgoth came. That was the last time in those wars that he passed the doors of his stronghold, and it is said that he took not the challenge willingly, for though his might was graced of all things in this world, alone of the Valar he knew fair. But he could not deny the challenge before the face of his captains, for the rocks rang with the shrill music of Fingolfin's horn and his voice came keen and clear down into the depths of Angband, and Fingolfin named Morgoth Craven and Lord of Slaves. Therefore Morgoth came, climbing slowly from his subterranean throne, and his rumor of his feet was like thunder underground, and he issued forth clad in black armor, and he stood before the king like a tower, iron-crowned, and his vast shield, sable unblazoned, cast a shadow over him like a storm cloud. But Fingolfin gleamed beneath it as a star, for his mail was overlaid with silver, and his blue shield was set with crystals, and he drew his sword Ringle, that glittered like ice. Then Morgoth hurled aloft Grand, the hammer of the underworld, and swung it down like a bolt of thunder. But Fingolfin sprang aside, and Grand rent a mighty pit in the earth, whence smoke and fire darted. Many times Morgoth essayed to smite him, and each time Fingolfin leaped away, as a lightning shoots from under a dark cloud. And he wounded Morgoth with seven wounds, and seven times Morgoth gave a cry of anguish, whereat the hosts of Angband fell 
upon their faces in dismay, and the cries echoed in the Northland. But at the last the king grew weary, and Morgoth bore down his shield upon him. Thrice he was crushed to his knees, and thrice arose again, and bore up his broken shield and stricken helm. But the earth was all rent and pitted about him, and he stumbled and fell backward before the feet of Morgoth. And Morgoth set his left foot upon his neck, and the weight of it was like a fallen hill. Yet with his last and desperate stroke, Fingolfin hewed the foot with Ringle, and the blood gushed forth black and smoking and filled the pits of Gron. Thus died Fingolfin, high king of the Noldor, most proud and valiant of the Elven King. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. What are your thoughts, Jordan? <laughs> Heartbreak. Uh, <laughs> it, um, I think it demonstrates some really overcoming people and an insane thing because of it. And in this case, probably the craziest thing anyone could do challenged the Dark Lord to single combat. I think it's one of, if not the coolest, book, uh, the image of him littering and shining beneath Morgoth and wounding him seven times, which I think uh, I was talking to Dave before we started, that seven seems to be like Morgoth's cursed number, that bad things come to him in sevens. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's... I think it's just phenomenal that, you know, he was he stood alone against a Dark Lord, unafraid, and battled him. Yeah. And I yeah. love it. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, one thing I would add there, this was something that I, I, I really just noticed this last time, um, is, let's see, uh, thus he came alone to Angband's gates, and he sounded his horn, and he smote once more upon the brazen doors. Remember, this is the second time Fingolfin has smitten on the brazen doors of Thangorodrim. The first time was when they had just crossed the Helcaraxa and they 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 march in at the right, you know, and and the sun rises and Morgoth is cowering and he puts up his little cloud to try to protect himself and shield him and his and and his and his people, you know, his servants from the sun and Fingolfin and his host march right up to Thangorodrim and they beat uh, and he beats on the doors. So the first time he beat on the doors was in the blazing sunlight at the at the first rising of the sun when Morgoth is cowering in his fear and they defy Morgoth. But of course, we remember Fingolfin in the in the direct contrast in that moment to Feanor and his insane charge. Uh you know, in, in contrast, Fingolfin sees, okay, this is, uh, this is not gonna go, let's, let's, uh, let's fall back and regroup here. Um, even though Morgoth is, and so now by contrast, the second time that he, he beats on the gates, uh, and calls out Morgoth is now in this almost exact opposite moment. You know, the first was Morgoth at his weakest point at the rising of the sun. This, to him, seems to be Morgoth at his strongest point. Now, instead of, you know, where everything was 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 brilliant and bright before, now everything is dark and everything is burned and he's, uh, you know, moving like a wind through the dust. Just love that. And remember... Um, Ah, yeah, the 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 wind, the wind. I I just love that. We'll come back to that in a minute. But um, but anyway, so I I think that that contrast, and you can see his in his despair, uh, his his courage, and the the sort of the the fitness of that. That in this moment, he he comes and essentially tries to complete. You know, he does now what he didn't do even before, what he didn't dare to do before. Um, and now when things look just a thousand times worse than they did before um that now he does it it's uh i i find that i find that pretty amazing dave go ahead 
All right. I want to jump in and, and call to everyone's attention the Orome comparison. Um, uh, so uh, Jordan read, he, uh, he passed over Dornu Fauglif, like a wind amid the dust, and all that beheld his onset fled in amaze, thinking that Orome himself was come. Uh, that really struck me because this weekend I was reading um, uh, the I was reading through some chapters of the Return of the King, in particular the Ride of the Rohirrim and the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, and I noticed um, that right at the end of the Ride of the Rohirrim, when uh, Theod right after Theoden shouts "Ride now, ride now" to Gondor um, and takes off, we get this line as well: "Fay he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like a new fire in his veins, and he was borne up on snow mane like a god of old, even as Orome the Great in the Battle of the Valar when the world was young." And uh, and I noticed that they both um, uh, get that Orome comparison, which I think is very cool. That seems to be the I, I think it's also interesting that they're both riding off to their deaths too when they get compared to Rome. Yes. Um, and so I just think that's cool. I like it. I wonder. I'm trying to remember if any other characters get in a Rome comparison, or if this is sort of a special um, uh, uh, sort of honor that they get. Um, it's also worth noting that they're both in sort of a, a battle lust or a fury um, mm -hmm. when they do this. So. Yeah, no, definitely. And I don't think so. Um, and, and, and in part, it is their wrath, which makes them particularly Orome-like. Remember, we're told that the two most fearsome of the Valar in battle are, of course, Tolkas and Orome. But the difference is that Tolkas is never angry. You know, I mean, he, he's always laughing, even in battle. And uh, he's just a, he's just a tearful guy, even when he's beating the crap out of you. But Arome, when he's in battle, is not laughing. Um, and so the you know this this charge, especially of the horsemen uh, in wrath, is like Arome. And I almost Dave, I was like seconds away from stealing your thunder there, which is why I stopped myself because it was another thing that I that I noticed in this passage because I too was thinking of that parallel with with Theoden, and I I love the Arome comparison uh, with Theoden. Um, um, also, remember that remember that at the darkening of Valinor, when Ungoliant has produced her unlight after killing the trees, we're told that the first light that returned to Valinor was the the sparks that struck from the hooves of Nahar, Orame's horse, in pursuit of of Morgoth and Ungoliant, just as Theoden's charge uh, on at the Battle of Pelennor Field is also the moment when the when the shadow breaks and light returns uh, as well, and sort of the the glow of his shield and his white horse is sort of the first light that we get in the battle there too. Um, so yeah, so th that Orome's comparison with Theoden is really cool, especially cool as remember, uh, no one has any idea who Orome was. I mean, when the Return of the King is published, the Silmarillion hasn't been published and won't be published for decades yet, uh, so nobody has the faintest idea what what it means to be that he's compared to Orome the Great. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, but but we certainly do do get that comparison there. But the other thing that I was that reminded me of Theoden is the wind through the dust, because of course it is also that that wind, you know, the the change in the wind, uh, which comes up and which everyone can finally perceive there uh, when uh, when when Theoden charges in. Now, unlike the char the charge of Theoden and the Rohirrim at the Battle of Pelennor Field. 
this is not a major change in the wind. The wind is coming from, if this is a north wind, the wind is set to the north and it's going to be blowing from the north for a while. This is just one little countercurrent of wind. Um, and I think that uh, you, I guess you don't get this major shift which blows away uh, the plans of the bad guys like we get. Um, like we get at, at, at the Battle of Pelennor Field. But anyway, it's... um. Uh, still, I, th- I, 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 I do still like that, that link with the wind. Um, now here's, here's, here's a question. We've got three people, three people charging alone to their deaths, two of whom are compared to Orome, and two of whom are called Fey, Theoden, Fingolfin, and Feanor. Um, with Feanor, when we were looking at Feanor's death scene, uh, and his mad solo charge to his death, uh, we didn't have too many good things to say about it. Um, what do we think here about Fingolfin in comparison? What's the difference between Fingolfin's charge to his death and Feanor's charge to his death? Um, and, and again, throwing Feoden in there, because again, we have that queer parallel established. Um, uh, what do you guys think? Chris, go ahead. Well, I think in, uh, in Feanor's case, it was, it was, well, it was wasteful, I and mean, we're talking about that on the side, but, uh, um, it was prideful. He thought he was going to go up and just take the Silmarils away, and so he rode up there and outpaced everybody, and, um, it was just, he just thought he could do it all himself, and it was, I think it was pride, and I guess Fay was the word, as you said, was, he, it just let his pride get away from him, and, um, Oh, I think I had a senior moment like who was it earlier in the evening. I kind of lost my final conclusion there. I apologize. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. I mean, I, yeah, I think that certainly one of the things that we were saying about Feanor's charge, he, unlike Fingolfin, he thinks he's going to win. I mean, he's like, I'm, I'm taking down Thingorodrim by myself. Mwahahaha. And that is certainly very different um, from both Fingolfin and from, uh, and from, uh, 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 uh Certainly from Theoden as well. See, so, see, I'm getting live audio from somebody here. Um, I see, uh, Dave, you wanted to talk about this too? Yeah, mostly I was just going to volunteer the point that you kind of just made that okay. um, uh, Feanor actually thinks he's going to win. Um, Fingolfin, I think, is going up there. I mean, it's really unclear what he's thinking. We really don't get a window into his mind. We're only told that he's really, really sad and angry. Uh, but he certainly, I don't think he is under any sort of, uh, <laughs> under any sort of misconception that he's going to win this. Right. Uh, and Theoden actually has the power to change the tide of the battle. He actually has the ability to affect the current situation, um, which is different from the other two. So yeah. I, I, I have mixed feelings about Fingolfin. Uh, on the one hand, he he clearly does not have the same sort of de, you know delusional pride that Feanor has. On the other hand, I don't I'm not sure that this is it, it's heroic, but I don't know if it's a it's a, a pure act of heroism. I think it's in a lot of ways he's going up to throw his life away out of despair and rage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it 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 does say that he despairs, um, and that doesn't seem like it can be an, a perfectly good thing. Laura, what do you think? Well, for once, I was going to agree with Dave. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I I read this thinking, you know, what a waste. Fingolfin throws his life away, um, you know, and why? Because, you know, he's, yeah, I mean, they, they've definitely done badly in this battle, but not not all the elves are dead yet. You know, the Noldor are, are still there. Um, Thingol's kingdom is still there. 
it's not clear to me why he does this, except that he just has kind of gone crazy. You know, the the other thing that I was uh, thinking about, and you sort of talked about this a little bit, but um, you know, this almost this almost was the ending I would expect from Feanor and not Fingolfin. You know, mm-hmm. it it almost uh, it, it seems like uh, we're a little little ripped off with with uh, Feanor not having this final scene against Morgoth. So instead we get uh, Fingolfin who does this. Yeah, I mean, it's true. You you kind of, certainly if anyone is going to deliver the, the the challenge to single combat, you would have expected it to be Feanor, right? Uh, though, again, certainly that might have been done in a different spirit. Um, but, uh, but, but, but yeah, it, I, I think that that is kind of interesting. There is a way in which this serves as sort of like the, the, the kind of unexpected sequel, um, of, uh, of, of the, the Feanor, uh, yeah, the Feanor non-duel. Um, Brandon, did you want to, did you want to give audio a try here? I know you're worried about your connection. Sounds like I'm getting something, though I'm not hearing you yet. Mm, not sure it's working there, unfortunately. I keep hearing what sounds almost like a connection. Oh, uh, well. Well, we can see if, uh, we can see if we can give it a shot later, Brandon. Um, Chris, you wanted to add something else? Uh, yes, um, you said something about uh, despair and its consequence, I think, a few minutes ago. And I had this um, flash about Denethor and his despair. And yeah. although Fingolfin's, I don't want to really compare their ends, really, on the other hand, their actions end up in the same place. They're both taken out of the battle, although Fingolfin's, of course, is much, much more heroic because he actually tries to do something other than just, you know, off himself. But... Uh, it is kind of a similar result. They're both taken out of the battle because they don't see, they, they, they are disturbed, you know, even though they don't know for sure things will be, uh, completely ruined, but it's in their own mind they're convinced of that, and so they end up, uh, where they could contribute further, now they're gone. You know, again, one's more heroic than the other, but at the end of the day they're both gone. Yeah, you know, that is a really good comparison. I mean, of course, with despair, uh, thinking of Denethor is a very natural thing. Um, and I think, of course, certainly, as you say, Fingolfin's end shows up really well when you compare it to Denethor's end, because, um, certainly there's a huge difference between going and challenging the enemy, uh, to single combat and just setting yourself on fire. Um, so, I, so, you know, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely some obvious difference there. But again, you know, at the, both of them are, despair which leads them both essentially to commit suicide and as you say I, you know i think of gandalf's definition right way back in the council of elrond despair in despair is for those who see the end beyond all doubt and you know yeah denethor was wrong when he despaired uh very pointedly wrong and here i think you know fingolfin is also wrong in fact we're gonna see by the end of the chapter it's not that they haven't recovered everything, but they've started to. You know, they, they're 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 making inroads again. And Dorthonian is gone, um, and some of the sons of Fanor, unfortunately, are kicked out. But most of the rest of Beleriand is actually kind of okay. They, the the siege is broken. War will never, you know, totally end and everything. But this is not yet the catastrophe. There's going to be catastrophe, but it's still it's still a ways down the road. Um, so Fingolfin is certainly misjudging the situation. Um, no, I need to, I need to make one more comment. Um, I think I've offended Jordan and I mean no disrespect to Fingolfin because he's a pretty <laughs> cool guy. So I didn't mean to, uh, 
upset him with the comparison to uh, the the suicide guy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I understand. Jordan, did you want to did you want to uh, respond to some of this? Uh, yeah, I think um, something that we seem to be not mentioning that we were very upset about Fingolfin a couple weeks ago was his boastful pride that uh, the elves would never be defeated by Morgoth and basically that the Siege of Angband would be permanent. Um, and a couple weeks ago we were like, oh, that's stupid. But if you look at it in that context and you see the absolute decimation of Dorthonian and these river of fire and dragons and balrogs coming forth, I mean, this is all happening under his watch and clearly not only is he wrong about them, you know, being able to hold up the Siege of Angband, I mean, he's deadly wrong, and to be fair, like, the despair seems justified under his watch that this happens, and that, to me, seems more justifiable than saying, you know, like, oh, like, he's just sad because they were lost. This is, you know, this is despair because he failed as king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I think you're right. We do definitely need to see his reaction here in the context of his boast before you know he had this vision of what they were doing and what they had accomplished and what they were accomplishing and what they could do he doesn't think they can sack uh Thangorodrim, but he does think they can hold things in and even thinking of that as a sort of a self-sacrificial gesture that's a really good thing um you know we see a couple times when uh some of the humans are going to uh, sacrifice themselves for the sake of helping and protecting um their elven allies and um, you can see in a sense the Noldor and uh, especially the Noldor doing this for the benefit of all the rest of Middle-earth let's hold Morgoth in here and then all of Middle-earth behind us is going to be better off for it Um, you know you can see the Noldor as in a sense for you know volunteering to sign themselves up as the rear guard for everybody um, and I, you know, so I, that's, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a good thing. And then as you say, Jordan, this is, you know, he sees this, you know, we, we have failed, you know, the one thing that I thought that we could do, um, it turns out we can't do. And it's not just, we haven't done it. It's not just that we've slipped up or something, but the suddenness and power of the attack shows him we can't do this. You know, this thing that I thought that we could do, I was obviously wrong, and we don't even have a hope of doing it. Um, and that does seem to be what leads him to despair. Mike? wanted to flag, besides the use of color and sound in the battle, I put a check mark next to the description of Fingolfin's shrill music coming from his horn during the battle, and so many times in all of Tolkien's works were referred to the the beautiful and artful music that the elves make but at this point in Fingolfin's journey he he's either dis- completely despairing or completely filled with wrath and he is fey and sort of mad and so that the music that this particular elf is capable of making is described as shrill and i think that also sort of brings home his mental state in just another way that i i thought was great yeah and 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 the the kind of the the desperateness of it you know that uh even sort of the the the, the greatest you know the, the the great defiance that he's capable of you know the greatest defiance he's capable of here is still under the circumstances yeah just kind of just kind of shrill and weak um compare in comparison i mean it's just uh yeah yeah um 
Let's see, uh, yeah, Jordan, go ahead. I also wanted to, if we're going to talk about sort of the style of this moment, uh, I love the fact that he's the king in these several paragraphs, king capitalized, uh, yeah. as well as phenomenal, uh, as uh, Chris pointed out, the phenomenal end to that sentence uh, of the paragraph that Anne Morgoth came. Just what a chilling and terrifying end to a paragraph. You want the Dark Lord to come out, and Morgoth came. Yeah, yeah, it, that is, uh, I, I agree, I, I I love that. I mean, I, I, I always love those little short sentences that Tolkien will interject in the middle of especially battle sequences. And and yeah, I agree. It is. And it's shocking. I mean, it's just it, you would not I mean, you, you wouldn't expect it. You know, I, that he charges and comes up and beats on the door again. We've we've seen him beat on the door before. But the idea that this, you know, Morgoth emerging um, from uh, from underground and towering above him there. Um, the idea, you know, it's one thing to to despair and say, I'm going to go and challenge Morgoth to single combat. And then it's another for Morgoth to emerge and engage you in single combat. Um, I agree. It is just it is that short sentence is terrifying. Um, yeah, that's uh, the, I'm really glad that you that you mentioned that. Um, uh, uh, Dave, you've been uh, fuming about the Eagles, and I think that it is certainly an interesting and worthwhile point. Um, you want to uh, you want to raise that? <laughs> sure. Why not? Uh, in a slightly less serious way, I would say, you know, thanks for nothing, Thorondor. Uh, he swooped down and grabbed Fingolfin just in time for his body to not be thrown to the wolves. Uh, how about, you know, ten minutes earlier, uh, just before he's about to get his neck crushed by <laughs> Morgoth's boot that feels, that has the weight of, like, a fallen hill or whatever. Like, you know, hey, uh, thanks for the effort, too little, too late. Come on. <laughs> But uh, on a more serious note, I really do think it's sort of an exceptionally weird intervention by an eagle because every other intervention we see by an eagle is in the nick of time. Uh, in The Hobbit, when, they, when, he, when the eagles save Gandalf and Bilbo and the dwarves from the wargs and um, the goblins roasting them alive, at the end of The Hobbit in the Battle of the Five Armies, at the end of The Lord of the Rings, um, earlier in the Silmarillion with, uh, I believe it's um, Fingon and Maedros, yeah. uh, at the end of the Silmarillion at the War of Wrath, when Arendil comes with all the birds of the sky, every other time they're just in time. This time, you know, about five minutes too late. Uh, what, yeah. Like, I wonder why that is. It seems well, kind of bizarre to me. I agree. And I, I mean, I think that it's because you are right. There is no, the Eagles. If there's anybody who has good timing, it's the Eagles. I mean, that's what that's their specialty. And certainly the the most recent example that we've gotten, um, the the one that you mentioned about Fingon and Mithros, when it's right when Fingon, remember Fingon has drawn his bow to kill Mithros because he, he, he can't get up to him and he can't get him down. And so the only thing he can think to do is just to shoot him and, and, and basically put him out of his misery. Um, but as he's got his bow drawn before he shoots, he prays the prayer to Manway um, and asks for help. And then bam, Thorondo is there before, like, be, while he's saying his prayer and before he can let the string go, Thorondo is already there. Um, I mean that is that is really yeah uh, 
exactly. really intricate timing there. If if their timing was if they had the same timing for that that they did here, they would have shown up just in time to carry Fingen off after he shot Madros. Like, well, you already he's dead, but uh, we can give you a ride. <laughs> right. Well, see, but well, that's the thing is that because of that, I can't. I, I, it seems to me really impossible to think that this is basically a failure on Thorondor's part. Um, you know, that, that, that for, that on this one occasion, he was 10 minutes late. Um, so rather it's, I feel forced to the conclusion that Thorondor's timing is exactly correct again. Um, and that they, you know, clearly his job, what he is being sent to do, and he does seem to be sent most of the time, um, what he is being sent to do here is not save Fingolfin's life. Um, but he does save his body from destruction, which leads to, small side point I wanted to make in passing here, the first of several uh, important tombs that we will get. As more and more uh, uh, important people die throughout the rest of the book, uh, we'll get more of these. Um, but this is the first of three major elven tombs, um, which are singled out uh, as being very significant and of, uh, you know, sort of, of of use in warding off uh, evil creatures. Um, and so Fingolfin is. I uh, this tomb, I would like yeah. to concur. Uh, I would like to concur. Just by the way, uh, I, I think it's. I agree. It's it's pretty clear that that by Thorondor's sort of impeccable timing every other time that this is when he was supposed to show up, which means that uh, Fingolfin was supposed to die. That they were, for better or for worse, they were leaving him to his own devices. He made his own decision, and he gets to to reap what he sows, and he dies, and that seems somehow plays into you know greater history. It it does seem to be that way. Or. or... Almost, I guess I would say, them um, respecting uh, the, the Valar respecting his own choice. I mean, you know, he 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 would not, it seems, thank Thorondor. At least not right. I mean, if Thorondor were to swoop down during the fight with Morgoth and take him away alive, I I, I, I that doesn't seem to be. Uh, what Thorondor wants. Um, the eagles don't ever seem to rescue anybody against their will. Uh, you know, Gandalf and the dwarves and Bilbo are really quite happy when the eagles show up and save their lives, um, as they are desperately trying to save their own lives. Um, Frodo and Sam aren't even exactly conscious when they're saved, but again, they're clearly glad about it. Anyway, I mean, uh, it, it, here we have somebody who has chosen death, um, when Denethor is in a similar position in choosing death, though, as we said, there are important differences, um, he is prevented from choosing death on Faramir's part, but he is in the end not uh, prevented uh, from choosing death for himself. Um, so I think I think that that's um, th there does seem to be a degree of basically the respect for Fingolfin's free will. Um, if you want to throw to throw your life away, if you you know if 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 your plan is to, um, then okay, you know we will we will honor that, we will respect that. Um, so anyway, I, I think that that's. Um, but you are certainly right that it is a, that it is a fascinating um, moment of intervention by Thorondor. Um, and clearly, however, it's important enough. And this seems to be, again, a compliment to Fingolfin. We want to, they want to save his body. They want this, they, they, they seem to approve of the tomb. Um, 
that is the commemoration of Fingolfin. They want there to be a monument. It's not. It's not. They'll even. He'll. They'll even wait until Morgoth has picked up his body and broken it. Right. I mean, it's a. It's not just that they're preserving his body from all harm or desecration. Um, Morgoth has already broken his body. Um, it's the throwing it to the wolves. That's that's the thing that we're gonna step in and stop from happening. Um, and then instead so we'll take his body and we'll set it up in this awesome tomb. Um, as I said, the first of three times we will see that happen with elves. There are some very important human tombs too, but this is uh, this is a, our first elven tomb. Can I hop in here real quick about the eagles? Yeah. Uh, and also you have to remember that had the eagles flown in at any moment prior to um, that, but him being crushed, you know, with his last desperate stroke, he hews his foot and that cripples Morgoth for the rest of his life. And it says that Morgoth never leaves his gates again. And I think we can assume that a major reason is because he has to hobble for the rest of his life. Uh, and what a much more formidable army Morgoth would have if he had been leading that army. And that even in with Fingolfin's literal last stroke as he's dying still serves a valiant and noble purpose uh, to saving other people. And that the Eagles had to let him die for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's... It... It's not completely clear that sort of exactly what are the long-term consequences of it. I mean, we're told that that he is clearly that his Morgoth is clearly affected by the wound. I'm not sure he would have been on the front lines under any circumstances, just as Sauron isn't on the front lines of his army. Um, either time, that is neither in the Lord of the Rings nor the first time, nor in the Battle of the uh, of the of the Last Alliance, um, he only comes out to fight when he is cornered, basically on Mount Doom. But, uh, um, but, but yeah, I mean, he, he, uh, he definitely, um, I, I, I think that you're right to say that Fingolfin, in a sense, does kind of accomplish something. I mean, M- Morgoth wins this battle, but it's not pretty, uh, for him. And, and again, I think you can see him kind of, like, he doesn't, he, he doesn't do it gladly, we're told, because he does know fear. Um, but even he, it seems, kind of underestimates, um, uh, what what Fingolfin is capable of here. Um, let's let's shift and talk about some of the the ally action that we get later on. Um, people helping each other and and uh, turning the tide. And here I'd especially like to talk about uh, Finrod and Bara here, and also uh, Kierd in the shipwright. Um, uh, which one would you rather talk about first? One do Bara here. I know a couple of you had uh, some Bara here points and questions. Who wants to be first to talk about Bar here and Finrod? Joe, go for it. All right. Well, mine isn't really about them coming to aid. So I was just going to say, like, I I can come back later because mine's more about the story, like, Barry's people dwindling, being parallel to the Dune and Dine. So if you want to stick on that topic, I can wait till later. Just throwing okay, it out Okay. Okay. Sure. 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 Um. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about uh. Let's let's talk about the actual uh, rescue of Finrod first. Matt. Uh oh. We lost Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, we'll try again to come back to you here. Um, Laura, go ahead. I thought that was a really cool scene where uh, uh, Bara here and his men come in and uh, and basically sacrifice themselves to to save this uh, this uh, elvish king. Um, it, and that's one of the things that Morgoth uh, and Sauron later too just typically underestimate the uh, the willingness of people to sacrifice for one another you know that's a strength that that they have that uh 
Sauron and Morgoth can't comprehend because the, the orcs would never do that. They wouldn't sacrifice themselves to, to save uh, somebody else, even one of their leaders. And uh, also, I wanted to just mention about Barahir's ring. Uh, that's the same ring that Aragorn gets many mm -hmm. years later from Elrond. And uh, I just thought that was really cool. That's that's kind of a little link to um, to the Lord of the Rings that we see here. Uh, one one of the heirlooms of uh, Aragorn's house is the Ring of Barahir. Yes, which came from Finrod, and ultimately, I believe, from Valinor. Uh, we know that Finrod is the guy who brought with him the most uh, jewels and precious things out of Valinor. Um, so yeah, the yeah, the ring that Aragorn is wearing during the Lord of the Rings is Finrod Felagund's ring, um, that he gave to 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 Barry here, uh, and we'll uh, we'll see in the next chapter how close they came to losing it, but but they didn't. Um, Matt, let's see, are you back? Okay, I'm sorry, I lost the connection for a minute, and I probably uh, I'm going to say something that was already said while I didn't have the connection, but. Uh, yeah, I just thought uh, Barahir was a very interesting character. Um, is he like the first warrior hero of the men that we encounter? Yeah, I mean, we've been getting some stuff about, you know, Hador and his sons and grandsons. Um, but this is certainly one of the one of the first major actions by the by the men in support of the in support of the elves. Of course, we got the heroism of of Haleth and her people and their fight with the orcs uh, That's during true. the That's last true. chapter. Um, but here, as far as their, uh, certainly them acting out on their allegiance to the elves, I think this is, this is certainly one of the first big moments for that. And, and it certainly should have uh, built up some confidence for men if anybody doubted what they could contribute. Right, right. No, exactly. And, and I think, you know, as, as, as Laura said, which I don't know if you heard, uh, Matt, they, they, you know, one of the things that they contribute is this self-sacrifice. I mean, we'll see that men are, men seem to be good at sacrificing themselves and that that's always a good thing. Um, and this certainly is one of the things that, um, certainly is one of the things that Morgoth is underestimating, um, is the power of, of his enemies to work together and what they will do for each other, um, which, as Laura pointed out, orcs would certainly not do. Let's see, Dave, go ahead. And, and I think oh, it's sorry, also no, sorry, Matt. Go ahead. I think it's also interesting too at the point when uh, Barahir was just reduced to him and his twelve uh, uh, lieutenants, and they're they're kind of like rough and ready outlaws, ready to to, to do what it takes. Yeah, yeah, and they're um, you know even there you see again them sacrificing themselves you know them being a rear guard um all of their all of the the women the rest of the you know the the, the last remnant of the people of Beor all leave and they stay not just i think out of stubbornness though we will see this we'll see some more of this uh next time but um but they stay and basically draw uh, draw the attention of Morgoth and of Sauron and uh and basically enable the rest of their people to escape although they never see them again as we're told um but also not only that it's like you know this is this is the last guard on 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 Dorthonian Dorthonian is one of there are three you know major areas which face up against Thangorodrim uh you know one is being held by Mithros uh the other on the other side being held by Fingolfin and Fingon and there's Dorthonian in the middle um and you know the elven lords who were there, Angrod and 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 Ignor, they're gone, they're dead now, and uh, the 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 people of Beor, they're it. Barahir is the last 
person to hold that frontier. Um, and so he's going to stay even when he's only got like a couple guys with him and they're still going to stay and they're going to, they're going to hold that as long as possible. And, and it does seem that they do good, um, that they certainly are, they certainly are responsible for, um, for, for preserving the lives of many people, um, because they certainly keep Morgoth's attention on them for a heck of a long time. Okay, let's see. Uh, Jack, you wanted to add something here? Yeah, just a, a quick note um, about concerning uh, Finrod's giving of the ring uh, to Bear here. Uh, I just happened to be reading Beowulf this week for the first time, actually. And um, in that book, um, the king is also described as a ring giver, um, I think, on a couple of occasions. Yes. And so when I read it in this in the chapter here, it stuck out of this stuck out at me immediately. So I just thought it was neat, and obviously Tolkien um, um, and Beowulf are closely connected, and and I was wondering if that came from that or what the tradition was there. Well, I mean, I think that that's really interesting because, um, yeah, basically the the whole ring giver thing um, is speaking to essentially the Lord vassal relationship. It's as, as it's described in Anglo-Saxon poetry. That is, the king is the one who hands out gifts. And the gifts are the, is, are the, are basically sort of the tangible outward representation of the honor that he is giving, um, you know, that he gives to his thanes, to his followers. Um, and, um, you see both giver and receiver are, you know, sort of increase in honor through these, through these gifts. And this is clearly illustrated in Beowulf on several occasions. Um, uh, most notably, uh, in the first part of Beowulf by the gifts that Hrothgar gives to Beowulf after he kills Grendel. And everyone is astounded. Uh, of course, Beowulf is, you know, he, he has deserved all of these incredible gifts, but also everyone is like, wow, Hrothgar is really awesome. Did you see the gifts that he gave? That's an awesome king. Um, and so I think, you know, that that's, uh, that's certainly part of the tradition. I think of another phrase, uh, which is another very famous uh, Anglo-Saxon word phrase. Um, uh, in addition to ring giver, the other thing that, that the king is called in the poem, the wanderer, um, which is about a wanderer who's lost his king and his, uh, and his people in his hall. And he's, he's, he's solitary now and, and quite miserable about it. And when he thinks back with great fondness and affection towards his king, who is dead now, um, he calls him his gold friend. Um, that is the, the friend who gave him gold and whose friendship was sort of represented by those gifts that he gave. And, um, so certainly the ring giver thing, the, you know, the, the, the giving of gifts as, uh, as this kind of Lord vassal relationship in this kind of Anglo-Saxon way. Um, is certainly interesting coming from. Remember, Bayor means vassal. It's it, you know the, he, the guy he changed his name to to be to be vassal, and they took he took this oath. Remember, to Finrod um, is the one that Bayor um, went on went to serve. Now his house has been living up in Dorthonian with Finrod's brothers, and not with Finrod himself. But we see here, you know, in one sense, what Bari here does with Finrod. Is that that's like the ultimate thing that a vassal is supposed to do? I mean, he Barahir has fulfilled sort of the 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 the, the vows of vassalage of his people, um, and Finrod is showing that he's keeping his part of it too, and he shows the reciprocity there. Um, Finrod it, it shows great humility in the vow that he gives. I promise that I will help and support you, um, that I will come to you and to your heirs. You know in perpetuity whenever they need it because you came to me um that they're going to this is not just a 
sort of a top-down lordship thing, uh, Finrod is really doing it right in his relationship with humans, and you can see Bari here really doing it right. I mean, this is that that this is a really great moment, and I do think uh, that there's something. I wasn't actually thinking of that Beowulf connection, but I do think that you know you you can see some of that same spirit here. Um, and of course, the ring is also you know is connected with promises and commitments. I mean, that's why that's why rings came to be associated with weddings in the first place. Um, that that is the the making of promise and the uh, the making of promises and the binding of people together. So, I mean, the giving of the ring is a really, um, in this moment is, uh, is, is certainly apt in that way. Um, but, uh, um, yeah. And of course, obviously Sauron is the other ring giver, um, the sort of the warped ring giver, um, and serves, uh, uh, and here I'm thinking of his giving of the rings, uh, to the nine men and to the seven dwarves in particular. Um, and you can see the sort of the 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 corrupt version of this vassal lord relationship and the way that Sauron is trying to manipulate that. Um, yeah, uh, Dave. All right, you played right into my hands. Uh, <laughs> I have an example that I, I would like to to hear your thoughts on how this fits into the ring giving as as sort of emblematic of the vassal lord relationship. So. I am in Appendix A of The Return of the King, and I'm looking at the exchange between Arvedwe and the uh, King of the Lossoth, yes. um, where Arvedwe does not take the uh, the King of the Lossoth, uh, the Chief of the Lossoth's uh, advice about leaving. He thanked him, and at parting gave him his ring, saying, This is a thing of worth beyond your reckoning, for its ancientry alone. It has no power save the esteem in which those hold it who love my house. It will not help you, but if ever you are in need, my kin will ransom it with great store of all that you desire. And the footnote, of course, says, uh, in this way, the ring of the house of Isildur was saved, which is great, of course, and, and very providential. But they also mention, for it was afterwards ransomed by the Dúnedain, it is said that it was none other than, of course, the ring, which Felagund of Nargothron gave to Barahir, and Baron recovered at great peril. Uh, so this ring has a very interesting history to begin with, but I would love to hear how the uh, exchange between our Vedway and the Lossoth chief fits into the um, vassal lord thing. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, it, it it is interesting, and I think that it's there are some there are two important differences. One is that although Arvedui is the last king, and so in some sense he is uh, he is on one level sort of superior to the Lossoth, but on the other hand, he's he's he came like as a beggar and has been given shelter essentially by the Lossoth. So um, certainly he is not trying to establish a sort of a lord vassal relationship with them um and and that also seems to be clear it seems to be clear that that's not his intention um that what we don't have here is the king who's almost lost everything already um but is still basically trying to act as if he were the lord and he were in the position to be the ring giver uh to to you know his sort of would be thanes um among the Lossoth, because it's clear that he's not actually giving it when Felagun gives this ring to Barahir, it is now Barahir's ring and will be the ring of Barahir and his heirs all the way down to Aragorn um, and presumably on. Um, but of that, the, all that talk about ransoming and stuff, you can see he's not intending that this is this is not now the ring of the Lossoth, you know, and this is not, this is not now you know, like this now the chieftain, you know, of them. This is now his ring and he's going to and he's selling it back. He's just keeping it. Um, and, and Arvedui clearly is intending that, you know, that I'm not giving you this ring. 
I'm going to let you have it so that basically you can you can sell it, but you can allow my people to redeem it implied because it is still the ring of my people um, and it, and doesn't actually become yours uh, in this. I mean, that seems to me pretty clear and, and, and again, seems to go along with the fact that he doesn't exactly appear to be um, he Arvedue doesn't exactly seem to um appear to be sort of establishing that thing. It's not exactly a it's not exactly a gift in the same way. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So th- those are those are my my quick thoughts on that ring giving. Because you're right, of course, it's another instance of the giving of this ring in particular. Um, yeah. Um, t- Joe, do you know, want to come back to the sort of the more general point that you were wanting to make earlier? Yeah, sure. No, I just thought it was interesting how closely uh, Bear Gear's house dwindling resembles the Dunedain. Um, you know, they were once pretty big and important, but then just their numbers start getting smaller and smaller. And, uh, you know, uh, then all of a sudden this great guy comes from the family and he ends up with an elf. And then, you know, also uh, it says that their beds were being the heather and their, their roof being the cloudy sky or something like that. It's just, uh, it's very, very similar to the to the Dunedain later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Um certainly Barahir and his group of outlaws are very ranger-like. You know, they're like the proto-rangers. And, uh, you know, and he's sort of officially a king, but he's not exactly a king anymore because he doesn't have a kingdom. Um, and, you know, and this is only one way in which Aragorn is like Baron. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I think that that's... Um, that, that parallel is, I think, definitely there. Um, definitely, definitely an important thing. Um, also, I wanted to ask... Uh, real quick, sorry. Uh you know, it says that uh, Finrod was supposed to help them in all their causes, but he, I don't know, maybe he just didn't, he probably just didn't know about it, but he did, he didn't kind of notice their entire, like, people getting wiped out almost. I mean, he's willing to help after that. <laughs> he he probably just didn't know about it, but I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, well, see, again, it's it's... Finrod is down, he returns to Nargothrond, you know, so he's way down in the south. And again, it's, although Beor uh, had sworn fealty to Finrod, he, his people didn't live in Nargothrond. And that, I think, is also interesting, um, that in, in thinking about um, in thinking about the difference between the men and the elves, and we, when we were talking about how the elves, um, that their natural mode seems to be to hide and retreat, um, with the humans, not so much, actually. Um, their tendency seems to be on the front lines um, and not to be, you know, so, yeah, they're still serving the, the house of Finarfin, but they're going to serve the house of Finarfin that's on the front line, thank you very much, not the part of the house of Finarfin that's that's way in hiding in the background. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the people of Hador are going to be also up on the front lines. And now here again, Haleth and her people are different. We're going to, we're going to go down, um, into, you know, this sort of more secluded area, but guess what? It soon becomes the front line. Um, and when it does, they're man in the front line again. So, um, I, I think that that's, that's kind of an interesting difference, I think, between the approaches of, uh, of the humans and the elves. Okay, we're running out of time. Two things I want to hit on quick. First, Kyrdan, and then slightly less quick, um, Turgon. So let's talk about Kyrdan first. We see Kyrdan again. Um, we see Kyrdan as the sort of our second example of these, these sort of allies between uh, between the peoples. Um, it's not Kyrdan's intervention is not self-sacrificial in the same way that uh, that Barahir's was. Um, theirs is more of a providential 
um, interaction. But of course, and there is it, sort of a nice piece of symmetry. Remember, Círdan was rescued. Um, he, he, his cities were being besieged by the orcs when the Noldor showed up, and then the Noldor show up and blast all of the orcs that are uh, that are besieging them and rescue them. And so now Círdan gets to uh, gets to turn things around and uh and and rescue the Noldor. So that's 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 kind of lovely. Um also the idea of, you know, the image of a bunch of Noldor being rescued by a group of Teleri coming in on ships is kind of poignant. Um, you know, you have something which begins to look from one angle almost like the opposite of the Kinslaying, almost like a reversal of the Kinslaying. Um and that's and that's 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 kind of special, you know. This is a this is a great moment for Círdan, um, you know, not only sort of you know sort of tactically or strategically, but um, but a very and and again a difference between Círdan and Thingol. Thingol is not going to stir out of Doriath, um, and you know we see Beleg and the war and the March Wardens coming to the help of the people of Haleth. You know, I don't want to I don't want to undersell what Thingol does there, but again, there's not going to be. Um, you know, the mighty intervention of the people of Doriath uh, in the same way. But Círdan, um, Círdan takes action here. And I think that, I think that that's pretty, I think that that's pretty cool. Um, thoughts about Turgon? Uh, Turgon receiving messages from Valinor, right? He's, he's sort of still tuned in to the, to the, to the Valar frequency there um, and receiving more dreams from Olmo. Dave, what are your thoughts here? I would just like to point out that this guy is has has been sort of in the right um uh like he he always he seems to have the right notion all along even though he doesn't succeed here he he starts the precedent of sending messengers into the west to ask for help which which is taken up by um by you know many later heroes who eventually succeed and I just think it's I think that's very important to point out that that he starts this this sort of uh, tradition of sending messengers to the West to try and get help for at this point the elves and men in Middle Earth and later on for uh, Numenor and just all along he sort of starts this idea of going back to the West. Well, I mean, in many ways this sets the precedent for um, the elves sailing back to the West um, um, from the havens and stuff. So uh, I just think that's cool. He's he's sort of the first guy to get this notion that you know uh, the 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 thing to do right now is to actually go back to the West. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, he's, he's, he's clearly doing the right thing. Um, and, and as you say, I mean, the interesting thing is that it doesn't work, right? Um, you know, he's receiving messages from almost saying, um, you know, oh, you know, you should send messengers and he's sending messengers and they're not getting through. They're all dying. Um, they're all, they're all being wrecked at sea, um, because they're not the ones, but it's good, but, but it's clearly, it's clearly the right thing to do. I mean, I th- I think that that's kind of actually sort of interesting in itself, uh, in thinking about the Valar and their connection. Uh, to this whole thing, but um, but yeah, I mean, and this is this is it's 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 just not surprising that it's Turgon who is doing this. You know, we talked about him before. He is the most he is the most even more than Finrod, the most westward facing of all of the Noldor. Um, you know, with his little memorial for Tyrion upon Tuna and his little gold and silver trees and um. And his relationship, his active relationship, it appears with Omo. And remember, Omo told him before in his initial message, not to forget um, that the the hope, their hope, lies in the west and comes from the sea. So, 
Um, so yeah, I think that it's um, this is this is uh, 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 clearly the right thing, and yet not bearing direct fruit, um, not actually working out right away. Um, again, and that that I think is that I think is that I think is kind of fascinating. Um, yeah. Well, it doesn't it doesn't bear direct fruit yet, um, and maybe we could we could speculate about why that is. It could be it's not the right time. It could be he doesn't have a Silmarillion or a Silmaril on his forehead. But it's still it, in the long run, it does bear fruit because he sort of sets this example that that later people follow. And so, in many ways, it's um, it's incredibly important, and it does it doesn't bear immediate direct fruit, but it certainly bears fruit down the road. And it paves the way for the salvation of the Noldor and um, and all of Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I mean that's what I was thinking of when I when I used that word direct. That is, it certainly bears indirect fruit, as one of the Mariners that he sends is not going to get through, but is going to end up playing another really important role. Um, so indirectly, it it you know his sending people is going to greatly facilitate stuff, but. Um, and set up the ultimate successful voyage into the West. Um, so yes, in, indirectly, definitely, um, it shall bear fruit. Um, and ultimately, it is the model for the one which is going to succeed. But um, but still, I think that that it's uh, the 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 lack of direct fruit. I still find kind of interesting. But anyway, I should let you guys go. We are uh, we are over time. Um, we haven't talked much about Hurin and Huor, but that's okay. Um, we'll get a chance to talk about Hurin and Huor later, and I think uh, when we come back to them later on, um, we'll get an opportunity to talk about Hurin and Huor and Gondolin uh, when we uh, we will see them meeting with Turgon again. And so I think that we'll we'll we can we can think back to their time in Gondolin at that point. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, lot to lot to talk about. Still a lot more to talk about in this chapter, but that was great. Okay, good night, everybody. I hope your heart aches less than mine. And thus, we conclude The Life of Fingolfin, whose heroism was unrivaled. If you enjoyed tonight's discussion, make sure to listen to our recap show, where Fingolfin is once again dissected for his greatness. Join us next week, when we begin our discussion on Baron and Luthien. This is Jordan Brown, and for the rest of the Silmarillionaires, I wish you Godspeed to the Halls of Mandos.